From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, June 3rd. I'm Monique Aiken. Today, I'm joined by Stefan Niccolo, Managing Director at Full Cycle, which invests in companies and infrastructure that are climate critical. Welcome back. You're becoming a regular here, and I don't mind that one bit. Neither do I, Monique. It's good to be with you. But first, here's what you need to know from the week in Impact Investing. African fintech and crypto startups have been on a roll. Financial services ventures have grabbed more than half of the $7 billion invested in African startups in the past 18 months. As capital dries up, lending for productive uses and income generation may prove more resilient than unsecured consumer lending, which has been used for gambling and speculation. Here's Ame Parbu of Axion Venture Lab on this week's Agents of Impact call. I think unsecured consumer credit um, is a challenging model in times like this. Um, it is it is important to just, as we think about, especially in lending businesses, you know, thinking about what's going to be driving uh, repayments, collections, uh, how that use of capital, you know, what the use of that capital will be. The top two vote getters in next week's mayoral primary in Los Angeles will face voters again in November. The number one issue, homelessness. Outgoing mayor Eric Garcetti has moved to settle a lawsuit by agreeing to move more than 17,000 unsheltered residents into rooms over the next five years at an estimated cost of between $2.4 and $3 billion. Daniel Hemphill, editor of The Giving List, writes on Impact Alpha that the city's next leader has an opportunity to create incentives and partnerships to draw in private capital to finance homelessness solutions at scale. Refed and Closed Loop Partners launched funds to catalyze capital for food waste solutions. The Berkeley, California-based food waste nonprofit and New York-based fund manager are standing up three investment vehicles as part of the Circular Food Solutions funding platform. By co-investing and taking riskier positions, the $80 million investment fund aims to catalyze five to 10 times that amount in commercial capital. Switch Bioworks raised $4.3 million for sustainable nitrogen biofertilizer. Biotech companies are promising to help farmers cut down on synthetic and expensive nitrogen fertilizer. The San Carlos, California-based company is using microbes to provide what they claim is a more sustainable and cheaper alternative. The microbes are formulated into a powder that farmers can rehydrate to produce their own biofertilizer. And in a sign that investors do have some leverage on gun makers, Shareholders this week approved a resolution to urge Sturm Ruger to undertake a human rights impact audit. The gunmaker CEO blamed, or should that be credited, institutional investors for bucking management and said that the company may not be primarily responsible for finding ways to reduce the risks of mass shootings. That, they claim, mostly falls on politicians. Their investors, however, felt differently and voted as such. So Stefan, welcome back to the show. I hear you were at Davos last week for the World Economic Forum, among other trips you've been taking in the month of May. So let's start with the Davos and what were the big takeaways? Yeah, it was a different World Economic Forum than I think most of the past. Uh, a, it was not during January. So those of us who were in attendance were the beneficiaries of far better weather and a lot less difficulty getting around. Um, and I say that to say it was a lot easier to talk to folks and really connect and um, be intentional about the conversations we were having. The backdrop was sure different as well. I don't think six months ago we could have predicted that we would have uh, full-out war on the European theater and destabilization of markets by virtue of it. And so 
you know, these were topics that were very prevalent and kind of interwoven into a lot of the conversations that were had about climate, about uh, supply chains, about inflation. You know, the backdrop was really um, curiosity, concern over an emerging world order that's less stable. And I think that uh, for climate in particular, kind of is working against our ability to get big things done, to make commitments and see them through. Um, and is indeed a distraction from the, the mission at hand, which is really to face something together that uh, no single country, no single entity can solve for itself. Um, so there was a bit of urgency at WEF, but there were topics that were kind of, I call them coefficients of drag, right? They really kind of um, provided more complexity for the conversations that really needed to be had around global cooperation for climate, how we move the capital towards solutions and companies that can really scale. But one thing that was, you know, positive and interesting is that nature and nature-based solutions and the investments that are around kind of scaling and augmenting nature uh, took front stage, uh, were front and center for a lot of the conversations, including the first day or the second day, rather, uh, in the Congress Center. So it was really good to see that, you know, we don't we don't get there without preserving, conserving, and, and regenerating uh, nature's ability to sequester carbon and provide healthy ecosystems. Um, so it's really great to see that kind of come come front and center and really be something that uh, corporate leaders, policy folks, and everyone who's in attendance could could glop around and, and come converse around and really think through how they could play a role and, and really how um, there's more than one way to take climate action for some of these larger players that show up at WEF. So there was a oil and gas conversation, sure. Um, and What's your take on whether or not the folks present are part of the solution set? Obviously, Russia, Ukraine um, in conflict and, and Russia uh, being in league in kind of this, um, you know, group of autocratic petro states um, really set the stage for folks really trying to understand the decision matrix ahead. What I mean by that is, you know, do we take the time and opportunity in this instance to uh, deploy capital at scale into renewables, into sustainable infrastructure at large that will decrease Europe's dependency on Russian gas and oil and exports? Or is the path of least resistance to go out and find those fossil fuels from other sources like the Middle East and Qatar and others? And what we see, the early indications of what we see is that countries like Germany um, are really taking a move both to increase their uh, use of coal as a backstop to energy disruption, and of course, buying and, and purchasing uh, fossil fuels from other sources. So there's a real conversation and de decision point that needs to be had now about what do we do next? Because what gets built today to deal with this crisis are 25-year assets, right? That's a, a world that is now diving more deeply into fossil fuel extraction and, and use, um, and it's hard to come back from that. So we really do need to think about the most efficacious way to build out clean, sustainable infrastructure, deploy it with both government capital, private capital at scale, not just in Europe, but all around the world to kind of decrease our reliance on these fossil fuels. It's unfortunate that it's such an acute uh, disruption because it really is changing uh, the at least the narrative. You hear, hear a lot of folks talking about drill more, not realizing that that too is two to three years off from producing any meaningful quantities of oil and gas that we would see as a supplement or a replacement of that which is being disrupted from Russia. 
So if we're going to take two or three years and a couple billion dollars anyway, we might as well scale up the renewables that can fulfill that that energy capacity and, and obviously not have the negative effects of it uh, along the way. So what or who was missing from the conversation there this time around? There were a few missing parties. Um, Russia was one, but they were disinvited. Um, I would say, you know, a lot of absence of, uh, so, so this is, I, I, I think, um, an opportunity for constructive criticism, both for, for the WEF and for all of us who kind of, you know, end up going to Davos and making that excursion and, uh, you know, along the way. Um, I think first is real absence of indigenous leaders and indigenous folks, um, the likes of which we actually did see uh, at the COP in Glasgow, um, the absence of which was pretty stark in, uh, at, at WEF. So, you know, indigenous folks generally um, around the world and communities around the world steward close to 80% of our biodiversity. So if we're not having the conversation that is inclusive of their voices, um, you know, we're going to look at ecosystems that are weaker, that don't have the protections laced into, uh, you know, their conservation and regeneration. Um, we're going to make some mistakes along the way that we can ill afford. And so these are conversations that are important to be inclusive on especially as corporates were trying to figure out their role, um, you know, part of their role uh, as corporate actors, especially as operators in indigenous communities, could be to support those communities whilst you operate and, uh, and extract and produce in those very same places. Um, so I think that's, you know, one group that was uh, potentially missing. And I think generally, you know, large institutional investors um, were also missing from the gathering. You know, there were a few, of course, there was our, but I think generally the kind of large allocators just didn't show up, I think, for kind of these private sector-led conversations. And I'm not quite sure uh, why, but I think there's a lot of perceptions of WEF as kind of this private sector uh, gathering only that doesn't fully integrate to not just government, but to institutions that you know play a role in, in how we get the capital out the door. Um, I know we'll talk about this later, but it, it really did lead to fewer and, and less conversations around how we create pathways for capital for climate action. You know, you have to have the trillions of dollars represented at the table to be able to start to identify what those pathways look like. Um, so that was a missing cohort that I think we saw a lot of in, in COP, but did not see uh, here at WEF as well. Uh, so did you leave feeling like Davos man and Davos woman are, have it all planned and wearing good handsome hair or, or really should we be very, very afraid? No, I mean, I, I don't think I left thinking that things were sorted and that we can go back to any sort of business as usual. Um, more questions than answered, I think, uh, came out of came out of WEF. It was good for folks to come together and have these conversations. It's very clear everyone's learning from everyone else and everyone else's experience. Um, so I didn't come away feeling particularly encouraged, except that there were some big moments where you could tell there's some real action coming out of corporates and uh, investors generally that are trying to let the, the, the rubber meet the road and make an impact in terms of bridging commitments to real action. So one thing I can point to um, as a, a, a marker, a marker of something we should seek to uh, understand and then potentially replicate if it's effective that a large number of corporates, uh, tech companies mostly, so Shopify, Alphabet, Meta, McKinsey, um, created a, a cohort of about a billion dollars to ostensibly pay folks to innovate, to draw down carbon um, and to sequester it permanently. 
by whatever means necessary. So creating a marketplace, as it were, for anyone looking to pull carbon into the ground, you know, that is uh, innovation that we should be celebrating because it's a way of moving capital and creating capacity. Um, it's just right now that's you know not a meaningful number at a billion dollars, um, especially at the price at which uh, that carbon would be sequestered. It's a good it's a good indication that there's new models, new ways of getting this done. I think if this kind of model, this kind of preemptive market making, um, could be picked up by large corporates, big fossil fuel companies, big ag at quantums of capital that are commensurate with the operations of those companies. Now we're talking. Now we're talking about the the kind of capacity that can then fuel the very needed innovation in carbon capture, in methane capture that has not yet happened. So the technology needs work. It needs to get commercialized. It needs to innovate so that it is of higher efficiency and higher efficacy. That'll happen when folks know there's an end buyer at the end of their journey of creating new technologies. And so that was really good to see. And I think there's a few of those examples out of WEF that we can look forward to and, and, and be excited by. Where are we not connecting the dots? And what are some insights that you drew from your unique vantage point and, and seeing uh, you know, these systems maybe in a little bit differently from some of the other folks who are, who are there, even with you? Yeah, I appreciate that. So uh, maybe two or three points that are kind of disparate, but point to kind of the under, undertold story, as it were, of WEF. I think the first is uh, everyone's trying to figure out just how deep inflation is going to get and whether or not it will indicate a global recession. Um, there's increasing opinions that there is likely uh, the case that that will happen. Um, when and how is anyone's guess, right? The world's a pretty uncertain place. But interestingly, for a certain pool of investors, uh, this could be a moment where we start to see more reasonable asset prices, more reasonable pricing of companies that are in climate that are creating value uh, in the climate value chain, as it were, um, it could be an opportunity for us to go in and do more per dollar invested than we typically might have to um, in an environment where prices are really um, quite high and, and robust and valuations are a bit outsized for funds that are just trying to get the capital out the door. So, you know, it's a unique moment in time, um, and especially for investors that maybe have pooled capital prior to a lot of this destabilization, but haven't yet deployed it, um, this could be a really interesting moment for us to do some some real, um, you know, really amplified work around climate, climate investing and infrastructure. So that's one. I think the other is kind of the undertold story of the Ukraine-Russia conflict, um, which is the majority of, of very old trapped and sequestered methane exists in the permafrost in Siberia, in the Arctic, in, um, you know, the northern part of the northern hemisphere. And that permafrost is thawing as we speak. The quantums of methane that could be released, um, the amount of thawing, you know, there's a lot of smart scientists in real time trying to push out the data so that we can understand the, the risk here. Um, but suffice it to say, we're talking about thousands of tons uh, thousands of gigatons, excuse me, of methane that could be released by uh, permafrost that's thawing. That is a quantum of methane that is so gargantuan, there's nothing me or you or anyone else in the market could do uh, to, to counteract its warming potential in the atmosphere. So this is one we have to have our eyes on because the majority of land mass that is releasing this methane is in Russia. And so if we're thinking about a status quo that we've got to emerge into, a, new, a world order where there's some sort of uh, peaceful 
navigation of this conflict um, and its results, we should want to emerge into a world order where we have a Russian Federation or its equivalent as partners to develop whatever technology we possibly can to stop this methane from being released. We know what technologies can do that. We know what rock formations, for example, are great for storing these gases. It's now a matter of do we have the wherewithal, the capability, and the, the geopolitical stability to globally cooperate and get that work done. Um, it's not really spoken about now, but it should be part of the kind of uh, national security and geopolitical framework of decision making around what we do about this conflict. So, so that's an undertold story, but it's an important one for, for climate, and it's very relevant for what's happening um, in Ukraine right now. I mean, the scale of what you're talking about is enormous, and uh, we do have trillions of dollars in capital markets aligned with ESG responsible investing, impact investing at this point, but it's still not enough. Um, what you're talking about is even far beyond that. So there's a role for the capital markets to be part of the solution set, I think, is what I'm hearing. And can you talk a little bit about your vision for how that and what kind of capital matching we need to do? Yeah, of course. And I think the first is, you know, we saw out of Glasgow, big commitments from a lot of financial players. So GFANS emerged with, you know, uh, several dozen trillion dollars committed to climate action. But the real number is far smaller than that, right? And I think part of that is that we have not done a very good job at creating the pathways of capital to effectuate the commitments that were made for a 1.5 degree world. Um, so we need to do a better job at linking those two things together and creating those pathways for financial institutions to play more than one role and play an outsized role in financing and funding climate action. You know, one thing I think, too, is in that quantum of capital that comes out to invest uh, into, into fund managers like FullCycle, into solutions directly and projects directly, is that we haven't right-sized the capital to the technologies that could abate the most amount of emissions per dollar invested. So right now, about 25% of the technology that we know can have a positive impact for climate is receiving about 80% of the capital, right? And these are technologies we know, solar, wind, storage, EV charging infrastructure, all of that, of course, is, is additive, helpful. We want to see it all grow, but it's not uh, right-sized for the amount of impact we could have. So that remaining 20% of capital is now dispersed among 75% of the rest of the universe of sustainable infrastructure. So the solutions that we know of in circularity, the baseload power innovations, all the things that can really make a big difference are not getting enough capital. So we've got to start to have a dialogue in the institutional investor market in particular around how you deploy capital in a way that is most effective. And that's of course, part of our methodology at FullCycle. That's how we built our, our investment thesis. Um, so, so those two things I think come together to say there's more we could be doing there's more capital we could put out the door and we could do so more efficiently. But these are dialogues now we've got to start having as a kind of more cohesive community of investors and allocators. Um, and, and the WEF is a, a great venue to do a lot of that. Um, we also have more conversations to have before we get to, say, COP27 in Egypt. Uh, so when you start talking about massive global scale coordination, we start talking about the need for diplomacy and you know, political will, um, personal will, uh, you know, thinking about how do we move people differently. Um, it goes back to my days at Georgetown. I thought I was going to study, oh, well, I studied international politics. I thought I was going to go into that as a career, but maybe we are all soon to be 
practicing diplomacy in order to be able to manage this kind of radical collaboration that you're talking about? Yeah, it's going to be a critical tool. Um, I know some folks kind of get down on the diplomatic efforts and, you know, the the last minute negotiations at COP uh, back last year kind of soured and maybe jaded a lot of folks to the role that diplomacy plays in all of this. But I'll point to something that was a bit of a success uh, out of our week in Davos, which is, you know, Alok Sharma uh, is still the president of of COP until the formal handover to the Egyptian delegation. And he managed to get the G7 in the room to agree to cease financing overseas fossil fuel infrastructure. That's a big deal. And it frees up hundreds of billions of dollars to then go into other realms of development, namely sustainable infrastructure and renewables. Um, and so that's a that's a, a marker of success for getting folks together to have hard discussions, to make commitments and to bring them to life. Uh, we should celebrate that and hope to see more of it. So all that big picture stuff is great, but before you go, uh, what's next for you and the team at Full Cycle? Yeah, good question. So we've got a, you know, it's been an active year. So we're uh, five companies into the portfolio. We'll only do eight. And so we are, you know, very much actively screening for the final three that will join our portfolio. We've got a couple of projects um, that are being originated by our companies. Um, you know, InPipe, who's one of our companies, is doing great and rolling out their baseload power solution to a lot of municipalities. Um, Evernew, our play on kind of fashion and textile waste circularity, um, is starting its first uh, commercial installation uh, in South Carolina and has big brand partnerships for folks who want to play a big role in, in taking climate action in that industry, in the fashion and textile industry, which is 10% of our global emissions. Uh, our companies are doing awesome. Of course, we want to be more fully engaged uh, with the investor community so that we can take even more action as climate destabilizes. So this really is a play of staying front and center uh, in the market and really originating the highest quality assets for folks to participate uh, in with us. And then, of course, participating in the narrative about what we do. You know, it's uh, not a foregone conclusion that we'll spend and invest our capital in the highest order of efficacy. And in fact, what we just walked through is that if things are left to their status quo kind of way of being, we won't be deploying capital as efficiently as we should be. So our model really serves as a way for the market to identify what more it could be doing uh, to take climate action, to deploy capital into the solutions that matter. And then, of course, you know, that that is also... Um, you know, in the purview and in the realm of of kind of the project drawdowns of the world where we start to see a categorization of solutions that is both science-based, research-backed, people can understand as investors in their community, as policymakers, what they can do to take climate action and then do it, right? This is a time now, if there's one takeaway from, from WEF that we can leave folks with, the time for talk is over, the time for action is now. There's a lot of talking that happens at WEF, but we saw a lot of action come out of it as well. And those of us who were blessed enough to be there um, should take everything we learned and translate it into the most effective climate action we could possibly be taking. Um, and instead of, you know, kind of thinking about the next gathering and the next time we get to talk, demonstrate what action we've taken in between those milestones. That's a much better way, a much more fruitful way to show up to these gatherings and to take real action that folks can point to and replicate globally. You don't have to tell me twice. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> it. Well, thank you so much for joining, Stefan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, we hope that everyone takes you up on that. Awesome, Wendy. So great to be with you. Thanks as always. Talk to you soon. 
And that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks, Stefan. And thanks to our producer, Isaac Silk. Subscribe to get full access to Impact Alpha and the Daily Brief. Right now, we're offering podcast listeners $100 off their first subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code BRIEFING100. Thank you for listening. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director for TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Make sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then, take care.